0: Gracious God and Heavenly Father, again we praise You for the wonderful work of our Savior Jesus Christ and for His majesty and power as our risen Savior and as our glorious Lord. And we pray as we look to His throne and to the scepter of His Word by which He governs us and through which He teaches us that every mind may be fixed upon Your truth, and every heart may be bowed before Your throne, and every will made pliable to Your teaching, and all of our lives made strong and well and gracious because of Your Word. And so again we cry to You, our Father, since we cannot live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from Your mouth, feed us, we pray, with that holy manna digested by our Lord Jesus Christ and now placed, as it were, in simple pieces for us, His little children, to understand and on which to be nourished. Break the bread of life to us, therefore we pray in Jesus our Savior's name. Amen. Please be seated. Now this evening we turn again to Paul's letter to the Romans, and we are coming tonight to Romans chapter 5, but we read in this evening from Romans chapter 4, the study of which we concluded last Lord's Day evening as we thought together about Abraham growing strong in faith and indicating to us, as Paul is doing at the end of that wonderful chapter, Romans 4, the character of the faith that brings justification as it rests on the Savior. No distrust, says Paul, no distrust made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I thought I might begin this evening with a little quiz, which most of you, I'm sure, will have the correct answers to. It's not too difficult, I don't think. What do these four things have in common? If you don't know the answer, ask the nearest child. Diggory Kirk's wardrobe, platform nine and three quarters at King's Cross Station, London, Alice's looking glass, and Romans chapter 5 verse 1. The answer, of course, is each of these things I have just mentioned opens into a world of unimaginable riches and amazing experience. Professor Diggory Kirk features as as a small bit player, of course, in the Narnia Chronicles. Platform nine and three quarters, for those of you who haven't been keeping up, is the place where everyone who goes to Hogwarts school goes in order to get the school train. Alice, well, we all know, even if we've never read, about Alice in Wonderland and through the looking glass. And Romans chapter 5 verse 1, as I said this morning, a major hinge in Paul's teaching in Romans in which all you need to do, as it were, is to push on the hinge, and as the door opens you find yourself in a, in a wonderland in which grace seems to become stronger, in which Jesus seems to become greater, in which the Christian life seems to become more triumphant so that by the time we have reached, for example, the end of Romans chapter 8 and come to another great hinge and then move on to Romans chapter 12, we, we feel so much of the weight of the grace of God in the gospel that we wonder whether that grace is exactly the same thing as God's glory. Diggory Kirk's wardrobe platform nine and three quarters at King's Cross Station. Don't try it, incidentally. Alice's Looking Glass, and Romans chapter 5 verse 1, but which is the odd one out? The odd one out is Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, because the world you enter through that door is the only one of these four worlds that's actually real. And it opens with these wonderful words of the Apostle Paul, since we have been justified by faith, therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I say this is a major hinge in Romans because, in a sense, these few words summarize where Paul has been going in his exposition of God's truth and opens up for us everything that will follow. And that's why I want us on our journey through Romans as we are pilgrims going through the wilderness with this little book in our hands to pause here and to camp just for a night, not the whole night, but you understand what I mean, at this oasis of Paul's marvelous teaching that most of us know by memory. And there are several things that I want us to try to notice. They are elementary, but they are no less wonderful because they are elementary. The first is this, that these words provide for us a summary of the letter's message thus far. Not, notice, a summary of the letter's message. The message of this letter, simply gets bigger and bigger. But they do provide us with a rather wonderful summary of the message of the letter thus far. What Paul has already taught us in what earlier on he described, you remember, as my gospel, the gospel that he has begun to expound because he's planning to go to Rome, he's never been there. His preaching and his gospel have been uh, under sustained criticism from the very earliest days of his public ministry, and he is wanting to make his credentials plain to his Roman friends, not all of whom know him, some of whom may know him by false reputation in order that they may come around him when eventually he gets there and, as he hopes, send him on to Spain in the fullness of the power of the gospel. And so he has spoken about how unashamed he is of the gospel, because it's the saving power of God, and why that saving power of God is so needed in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, and then how marvelously God has provided that salvation in the work of Jesus Christ, and that was really the last place we camped for some little time in Romans chapter 3 verse 21 following, to see the multidimensional nature of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for us, how He propitiated the wrath of God, how He has brought about justification. For the ungodly, and how there is a richness in the work of Jesus Christ into which we can sink our souls because of what Paul calls the redemption, the liberation, the freedom that there is from the bondage and guilt of sin, from the terror of death, from the shackles of Satan. All this glorious deliverance that is ours in Jesus Christ. And and then, as it were, he bade us move on more as he began to teach us some of the implications of this, and then in chapter 4 to emphasize, particularly to those with a Jewish background, that while this gospel was a gospel that came apart from the law, it was witnessed to by both the law and the prophets and was indeed the gospel that Old Testament believers held on to by faith, by means of the promise that God had given to them, as He did, of course, especially in chapter 4 to the great patriarch Abraham. And what he's saying now is he gathers these things together as he, as he summarizes where we are if these things are true of us. He says that the result of all this is that we are justified by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to remind ourselves, or to notice if we haven't already noticed it, that that justification is a total pardon. It covers our persons and therefore it applies to the guilt of the past, and amazingly it applies to the guilt of the future. Daringly, we may say, it also applies to the guilt of the future. And this, of course, was one of the reasons why people were sometimes nervous at the preaching of the Apostle Paul. You say to people that they are justified, not just to this point in time, but justified forever for the rest of their lives, and that even their sins in the future are covered by this justification, and you simply let them loose to live any sinful way they please. Paul has been saying, hasn't he, in Romans chapter 4, which in a way is proof positive that this is his gospel, oh, no, no, no. You don't really understand what justification by faith really is if you say that. He's going on later to demonstrate that we don't understand what salvation by grace really is if we say that, because he says, you see, the faith that brings justification is faith in Jesus Christ, and faith in Jesus Christ so unites you to Jesus Christ. That the idea that as a justified man or woman or young person you would simply go and sin to your heart's content, that could never possibly cross your mind if you understand what real faith does. Because real faith grows strong as it gives glory to God. And so here is this wonderful truth, you see. Paul doesn't say you are justified by faith now, but if you want to get to heaven in the end, you're going to have to try to amass the good works you failed to amass before you became a Christian. No, he says, your person is justified. You are justified permanently in God's sight. It's total in God's sight. And when faith grasps Jesus Christ for that total justification, faith's greatest aspiration is to bring glory to God and to say, Lord God, in the light of this, how may my life bring you glory? That is my greatest joy, to glorify you So, we need to understand. It is stunning, I know. It is absolutely stunning, which is why so often we live so far below the privileges that the gospel bestows upon us, that we cannot be more justified than we are now, that if you lived a life of almost perfect sainthood, between now and glory. If you are a Christian believer tonight, you cannot be more justified in your old age than you are now. Sanctified, yes. Changed, yes. Transformed, yes. But justified, no. It's because justification is total. It's the justification of your person as a Christian believer for all eternity, that there is nothing you can do to add to it, and if you try to do that, you subtract from it, you misunderstand it, and you will lose your peace and joy and your sense of glory, because justification is total pardon clothed in His righteousness divine, bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. You could go a long way as a Christian on those few lines, couldn't you? I trust by God's grace. Now, the reason it's total, try and follow this, the reason it's total is because it's final the justification which is ours in Christ. Now, you remember what Paul had said? He was put to death for our transgressions, and He was raised again for our justification. He didn't need to be raised again for Himself as the Son of God. He didn't need to do anything for Himself as the Son of God. He came into the world and assumed our human nature in all its frailty in order to do something for us. He stood in our place from the moment He was conceived until the moment He was glorified, and He still stands there in our place, the New Testament teaches us. So that the righteousness, the justification that Jesus Christ wove for us throughout the whole course of his life is the righteousness of somebody who has come under the condemnation of sin and death and broken through into the new world of glory and has secured for us a justification, a righteousness in which He has and does this very night stand before the throne of His Holy Father as our substitute and representative. And as we have seen more than once now, the only righteousness with which you and I can possibly be clothed is that perfect final righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's actually part of what the resurrection means. The resurrection means Jesus is the righteous one. And now, as we are united in faith to Jesus Christ, as we trust in Him by this faith, that righteousness is made over to us. If I can put it this way, the righteousness that comes to us in the present comes to us not just from the past. It comes from the future. It's God pronouncing His final verdict upon your life in Jesus Christ the moment you come to Him in faith. And that's why it's so permanent. That's why it's irreversible. And that's why it's so glorious. And so Paul is saying now, let me summarize, he says, as we move on, as I open the door into a a treasure store of, of, of gospel truth. My dear Christian friends in Rome, let's just pause and summarize and try and take it in just one more time before we move on from this platform and climb another hill and see further blessings and glory being justified by faith, being justified by faith. I don't know if it's as true nowadays, it used to be true when I was a much younger Christian that people used to speak about the deeper things. And usually they went to conferences to be taught these deeper things. The implication was you don't get these deeper things in your ordinary church. You only get these deeper things when you're among the higher people. And I remember as a young Christian, eager young Christian, thinking, I must, I must pursue these deeper things. They took me down as I look back in retrospect some strange roads. But oh, I longed for these deeper things until it dawned on me that my real need was not so much for new and deeper things, but for a deeper grasp of the basic things. And that's what we need. That's why the Apostle Paul is always coming back to the basic things, because the Christian believer learns to live his or her life on first principles. Let's go back to the basic things. And you notice if you, if you read through Paul's letters with this in mind, you'll notice that things go wrong in the Christian life, and things go wrong in the Christian fellowship, by and large, when people have lost sight of the basic things. And so he's always, he's always, as it were, hauling them back to the basic things and saying to them, as he says in Romans, as he says in Corinthians, don't you Christians know this? Has it never dawned on you that this is true? And so, this is the summary of the letter's message thus far. We have been justified by faith. But the next thing that Paul is pointing out here, not just a summary of the letter's message, but he wants to draw our attention to what we might call, well, might call, what I am going to call, the logic of the gospel's implications the summary of the letter's message, and the logic of the gospel's implications. You notice the first word in our English translations, at least it is there if you are using the English Standard Version, and if you happen to be using the New International Version reading through Romans, buy yourself an English Standard Version because it quite often misses out the little connectednesses that fill Paul's letters. And the first word that appears for us in our English translation here is "therefore," And it's a tiny little word in Greek. It's just three letters. And if you could recognize these three Greek letters and get hold of a Greek text of Romans and plot your way through Romans just looking for these three letters, you would be amazed how frequently they appear. And they appear because the Apostle Paul, remember I said a moment ago, the Apostle Paul teaches Christians to think from first principles, and on the basis of first principles, to move along to think clearly about the gospel. And he's vitally concerned that we learn to think about the gospel. We live in a world that is awash with feelings, And we actually live in a society that is riddled with sentimentality. And all of that can invade and infect the church so that we are drawn away by the things that make us feel good, or we turn away from the things that don't make us feel particularly good. And the Apostle Paul's mantra in all of this is, think, 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 think think, because that's how your life is going to be transformed. Now, that's a first principle, and I hope we understand it. I've never forgotten as a youngster, it happened to be, I think, reading John Stott's little book, Men Made New, which was an exposition of Romans chapters 5 through Long before he completed his uh, Bible Speaks Today commentary on Romans. It came out in the 1960s, for those of us who remember the 1960s. I remember just one statement in that book. There are many good things in that book, but one statement in it that really struck me as a teenager. Listen to it. The secret of holiness lies in. Well, where does it lie? That's the next test tonight. Where does the secret of holiness lie? The secret of holiness lies in thee. Have you got it? Mind. Now, on what basis can we say that? We can say that on the large basis that Paul, as he works through Romans, keeps on saying things like, now, do you see what follows? Therefore, do you see what follows? And especially because in that great text to which we will eventually come in this eighteen-month study of Paul's letter to the Romans, not including breaks, when he says, You remember to the Romans, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How are you going to be transformed as a Christian believer? By the renewing of your mind, he says. By the renewing of your mind not by feeling better, but by thinking more clearly about the gospel so that the truth of the gospel is clear in your mind. And as you think clearly about the gospel, then your life begins to get into place as the gospel comes through your mind and touches your affections and your understanding and your heart and holds you in to be transformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of you who are old enough to remember the King James Version may have heard Proverbs chapter 23 verse 7 cited by wise old Christians, "'As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he.'" Well, it turns out that's not the greatest translation of Proverbs chapter 23 verse 7, but I tell you, it is the greatest wisdom our greatest need as Christians in the present time. I'm not talking about becoming intellectuals. I'm talking about our greatest need of understanding the gospel in such a way that the gospel can be released into our minds so that we then grasp the truth of the gospel, and the truth of the gospel makes a difference to how we think, to how we will, to how we live, and then gloriously it makes a difference to how we feel. And we will come sometime in the future to illustration of how Paul feels differently because he has thought differently about the gospel. Now, you can see this pretty easily, actually, if you just turn back just to give you a sample of this to chapter 3 verse 1 he asks the question, then in the light of this, what advantage has the Jew? And then in chapter 3 verse 9, what then? And you see what he's doing. You maybe don't notice he was doing it, and that's fine. But he's leading you along. He's saying, do you understand the gospel? Do you see how it works? Is it clear in your understanding? And so when he comes on to chapter 4 verse 1, what then? And then in chapter 4, verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Verse 10 of chapter 4, how then was it counted to him? On and on, he's saying, let's, let's, let's buckle down here and think this through because it will be so helpful to our Christian lives to have a clear understanding of the gospel. That's why the exposition of the truth of the gospel ought to transform our lives, because the clearer our understanding of the gospel, the sharper ought to be our ability to live by the gospel. And so he's saying, do see the connectednesses. If all this is true, therefore, he says, being justified by faith since this is true, we have peace with God. Now, whether you've got the New International Version or the Old International Version or the English Standard Version, which incidentally was published first in the United States, and so I've always thought that was a rather interesting title for it, and if your eyesight is capable, you'll probably see a footnote down at the bottom of your page at Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 that tells you that there are manuscripts of the New Testament that suggest that what Paul actually wrote was not, we have peace with God, but let us have peace with God. And if you're using the Pew Bible, I think it will be footnote 3. Now, if you really want to know all about this, the thing to do is to corner Professor Bill Larkin, and he will, he will tell you all about it. But the reason for, for these two variant translations is a, is a very simple one. Our New Testament manuscripts, you know, we don't have, we don't have the, the original piece of material that the Apostle Paul wrote. We've only ever had copies. And people tended to copy things by getting somebody to to read the text out. And the difference at this point, uh, not to bore you with technicalities, but it's not uninteresting, the difference at this point is the difference between the word echomen and the word echomen, which in Scottish isn't very much. And echomen means let us have peace with God and echomen means we have peace with God. And you can understand why a scribe somewhere or another might write in a long O rather than a short O, or a short O rather than a long O. And the problem is, which kind of O did the apostle Paul mean to dictate? It's not an easy question. The early fathers of the Christian church, I happen to be reading this week, need to rein myself in here, the, the very earliest commentary, that I, uh, full commentary on Romans that I believe was uh, uh, ever present in the Christian church, and that father of the Christian church assumed that what Paul said was, "'Let us have peace with God.'" and indeed some of the strong manuscripts of the New Testament. Indeed, most commentators today suggest the strongest manuscripts have that, but they're all copies. And so, we have to work out, well, well, what was Paul most likely to say? And at that point, most most evangelical commentators today suggest, well, the logic of what Paul is saying here is, surely… Because we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. Not, let us have peace with God. He's not speaking about our experiencing the peace of God in our souls. He's speaking about having peace with God. You expect me to settle that issue when the greatest New Testament scholars in the world choose one over against another? Well, let me just say this, which is of interest to us. And if Paul did say, let us have peace with God, think about this. Paul has been speaking about justification. That's courtroom. I don't know if any any of you have ever been on trial. Some of you are lawyers, and you've been on the other side of the trial. And I don't know what an American judge says at the end of a trial because all I've seen is CSI and Perry Mason, and I'm sure it's all made up. But you know, I don't think a judge at the end of a trial says, Shalom, I think he might say, case dismissed, not guilty. That's kind of justification language. I don't think he raises his hand in the dock because if he is, he's confusing the ministry of the state with the ministry of the church and pronounce the benediction on the person who has been tried. So, there are two metaphors at work here, aren't there? There are two pictures at work here. The first is the picture of justification, and justification brings us acquittal and righteousness before God. But you notice by the time Paul has come to the end of this section in chapter 5 in verse 11, he uses very similar words when he speaks about the rejoicing that we have in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, it's when reconciliation breaks out that peace is pronounced. So, what Paul appears to be doing here in Romans chapter 5 verse 1 is pulling together the privilege of justification with the benefits of reconciliation. And I don't think it really makes all that much difference at the end of the day whether the apostle Paul is saying, dear Christians in Rome, since we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we also have entered into that other benefit that Jesus Christ has wrought for us on the cross in the reconciliation that He provides for our alienation from God. Justification for our guilt and condemnation before God, reconciliation for our alienation from God. And if that's true, then perhaps it's understandable that he would actually say, either, We have this peace with God, praise be to his name, or say, Since we have this justification, dear ones, let us, as it were, enjoy the privileges that flow from another aspect of the work of Jesus Christ in reconciliation and let us let us as Jesus you remember says to one whom he has saved go into peace shalom peace and Shalom, really isn't it? It's a, it's a far bigger idea in the Bible than justification. Justification, righteousness in the Bible leads to Shalom. And since it seems fairly clear, as we've noted elsewhere, I think, on a number of occasions, that the Apostle Paul's appreciation of the gospel has been wonderfully informed by the second half of the great prophecy of Isaiah. It is there that when righteousness comes through the righteous servant of the Lord who bore the chastisement for our peace, who was the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, in the second half of Isaiah, peace seems to be breaking out all over the cosmos. And it's not just a cessation of war. It's the outburst of a most glorious restoration. The desert is blossoming as the rose. The lion and the lamb are lying down together. Alienations are healed because the basic alienation between God and man is going to be healed in the suffering servant. And so, Paul is saying, let's enjoy the benefits of justification and knowing that we are as righteous before the throne of God as His dear Son, Jesus Christ, is righteous because we are righteous with His righteousness, and because God made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin in order that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Let us, let us be reconciled to God. Let us us enjoy the shalom that God pronounces upon us in our Savior Jesus Christ. And so, we have a double blessing, and this is only chapter 5 verse 1. There's more to come. We have the double blessing of being able to stand before His throne and knowing that the alienation is all gone. It's not just that He narrowly justifies us. The judge in the dark could narrowly justify us, but for there to be a breakout of blessing. And you see, this is really, if this is what Paul is saying, it's just the beginning because one of the things that we then begin to notice is, he says, and you know there's much more, And he uses that idea several times until from chapter 5 right through to chapter 8, when eventually he breaks out and says, and there is this much more, that in all of these things that harass us, we are even more than conquerors through Him who loved us, even our Savior Jesus Christ. It's absolutely astonishing that He has justified us, and that He has dealt with the alienation. Do you know those words of Augustus Montague, Toplady, that uh, he wrote in a time of some distress, I think, and, and found his anchor in these truths in Romans 5 verse 1, from whence this fear and unbelief. Now, I'm very interested in that because I think that's a not uncommon thing in Christians, not just unbelief, but fear, anxiety, and anxiety about our relationship to God. He loves me. He loves me not. Things are going well. He loves me. Things are going badly. Does He really love me? It's a question that comes again and again and again to Christian ministers from people who are going through difficult times. Why is God doing this to me? Has He turned against me? Has He thrown me out? From whence this fear and unbelief, since God my Father put to grief His spotless Son for me? Can He, the righteous judge of men, condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on Thee? Now, listen to this. If you've never heard these words before, try and remember them. Complete atonement Thou hast made and to the utmost farthing paid whatever thy people owed, how then can wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my place endured the whole of wrath divine." Now get this, payment God will not twice demand, first at His bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. Dear ones, there is no double jeopardy with God. He has acquitted you and justified you of your Christs once and for all and forever, and to prove it, He brings you into this glorious shalom. Well, we're almost out of time. Let's turn very briefly to a third thing. Paul is teaching us, in a sense, in these words, a summary of the letter thus far. He's teaching us the logic of the gospel for our great benediction. And then I want you to notice just in a word, he gives us the answer to the great question, where am I going to find this? How can it be mine? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice this now because we'll notice it again. Paul is from this point right through to the end of chapter 8 going to haunt you with this expression, through our Lord Jesus Christ, in our Lord Jesus Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ. As though to say it steadily but gently, are you getting it yet? Dear Christian, are you getting it yet? Are you getting it yet? Do you see there is only one source for all of these blessings? and it's in Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 11, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 21, as sin reigned in death, grace reigns through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 6, verse 23, the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, chapter 7 and verse 25, who is going to deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Chapter 8, verse 39, height, depth, nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see what he's saying? He is saying, why Do you seek to drink from any other fountain for these blessings when these blessings are to be found exclusively through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? So end your fretful pursuit of blessing outside of Christ. End your passionate pursuit of blessing in any other than Christ. Come again to this fountain and drink deeply of Jesus Christ, because God has made over to you through his death his last will and testament that any who apply to Jesus Christ will have every spiritual blessing. You know, lawyers everywhere seem to form companies that have three names, and I used to dream that the letter would come to me, or that I might see it in a newspaper, because in the United Kingdom it would sometimes be printed in a newspaper. It might even appear, might it, in our local newspaper one day, if anyone knows the whereabouts of Sinclair Buchanan Ferguson, formerly of Scotland, will he please advise MacDonald, McCluchty, and Shearer and encourage Sinclair Buchanan Ferguson to apply as soon as is able to the following address where he may learn something to his prophet is prophet. That's what Jesus is saying. If any will apply. And Paul, I mean, this is Paul. This isn't as stable, more or less, citizens of Columbia, South Carolina. This is Paul the zealot who hated Jesus Christ. But if Paul the zealot who hated Jesus Christ will apply to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ will give to Paul every spiritual blessing. So why would you mess around anywhere else than in Christ? Do you know one of the things, there are many things I feel very thankful to be a minister in this church for, but one of the things I'm thankful at this stage in my ministry is that nobody yet has said to me, will you stop preaching about that Christ? And if anybody does, I'll have to say, no, because there is no other name under heaven given among men, that can supply these riches to sinners. Heavenly Father, thank You that You create thirst in us. Thank You for every measure in which we individually and as people here have in this very hour experienced answers to our sung prayer, and our Lord Jesus Christ, as we surely believe, has moved among us and served us individually with manna from heaven. Satisfy us more and more with Him, we pray. And as we live in this week, as in these moments we part from one another, go our separate ways, some of us to burdens and anxieties and fears, and to business and to the struggles of life. Help us to keep drinking, and help us to keep thinking, and help us to keep enjoying the riches of Your grace. We pray this with great thanksgiving in Jesus' name.